I love the way the church anchors things like Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving holidays in the greater narrative of God's salvation history. I love the way it pulls us back in. It's why I was drawn to liturgy as a young college graduate in Jacksonville because there's just a rootedness to our faith when we, when we get up here. It's not just about a sermon. It's not just about songs that we sing. We've got this liturgy that fixes our point in history and reminds us of where we are. Drew Elswick was uh, our, uh, sort of our trail boss on our men's hiking trip this year that got back uh, a week ago, uh, a little over a week, the weekend before Thanksgiving. And Drew, uh, I love Drew, he is, he is a manager per excellent. He gave us all colored copies of the map. I'll be honest with you, I never looked at my map the entire weekend. But I was confident that it was in there, in my pack, should I need it, I was never going to be away from Drew. My point was to always be within eyesight of Drew Elswick. And as long as I was in eyesight of Drew, I was all good. But I had the map if I needed it. And on that map, continually Drew was bringing us back to the point and saying, here's where we are. Don't tell him, because he's not here this morning. But I I didn't really listen to that. I just thought, I'm just going to always be in eyesight of Drew. But I always knew that that map was there. And then I could point myself and say, okay, here's where we are on the trip. Liturgy does that for us. Our liturgical year does that for us. We are at the last Sunday of the liturgical year. This is Christ the King Sunday. You heard David talk about it. It's, 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 it's rooting us in the, the great narrative, Christ the King. We have, we have lessons that all revolve around that, that theme of, of Christ coming and being Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And it roots us. Next week we'll start in with Advent 1. And we'll be reminded of the end, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, just as the creed says. Can I just walk you through this for a moment this morning and and remind you of where we are? It it is helpful to me, and I'll explain why in the end, to, to have this perspective, to find out where we are and to remind ourselves of this greater narrative that we're a part of. Well, first of all, we have the, the Daniel passage from Daniel 7. Uh, you have to remember, and I'll remind you, that Jesus used this phrase, son of man, to refer to himself. More than any other title Jesus gave himself, he constantly reminded himself that he was, uh, reminded us that he was the son of man. He is referencing back to Daniel 7, where we see this scene opening up at the end of all of the world, and God, who is the ancient of days, I don't know why we didn't do the Ancient of Days song, but anyway, but, but, why, but Ancient of Days, here is God who is the Ancient of Days, and he is judging the beast, who of course is the great enemy of God, the deceiver of mankind, the devil. He is being judged and he is being executed. And out comes one like the Son of Man to receive his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. It is... It is Christ coming to receive his kingdom as the ruling king of the world. Now, we don't have kings in our day except, you know, over in England, you know, we've got a queen. She doesn't really have any power. It's hard for us to, to, to sort of relate to that idea of kingdom, but, but it's historical for most of the world's uh, history. Kings and queens and kingdoms 
or a huge part of their understanding of the world. And so it's rightful that, that Jesus would be described as this, this one who comes like the Son of Man to receive his kingdom, which is everlasting. Well, then we jump down to the, to the New Testament passage, to the gospel passage, which is the John 18 passage where Pilate is brought Jesus. Jesus comes to, to Pilate, and, uh, and he is there to judge Jesus. He's there to decide whether Jesus has done something worthy of death. But Jesus doesn't really play along. I love the interaction. Did you catch the, the interaction there between Pilate and Jesus? Pilate seems to be the authority, the power, and yet Jesus continually refuses to play by his script. Yeah, who are you? You know, you know, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you asking this question of your own accord? Or is somebody else telling you this is the question? In other words, he's reminding Pilate that he's not in control. He's not in power. He's simply asking someone else's questions. He's being manipulated. Jesus says, well, you call me a king. Well, really, Pilate didn't call him a king. He asked him if he was a king. See how Jesus keeps... And, and by the end of the conversation... It's Pilate that is befuddled and asking the question, what, what is truth? What is truth? Is, is there any truth? He's looking to Jesus for answers rather than pronouncing judgment against Jesus. Jesus says, look, if, if this was my kingdom, like your kingdom, Pilate, my servants would be fighting that I would never have been delivered. But, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's, it cannot be bound by this world. And therefore, a greater purpose is being lived out. And you're simply a player in this greater purpose. And Pilate's left going, I don't know. What, what is truth? It's, it's, an, it's an amazing parable. Or amazing section pericope of scripture, as they would say. But then we come to the Revelation passage, and here is where I want to sit down with you for a couple of minutes. The Revelation 1 passage. I would invite you to turn over there with me if you haven't opened the the Pew Bible up. Um, It's right there on page 1028. The reason why we, we have Bibles in the pews and constantly ask you to refer to them is not because we we enjoy you know referencing scripture pages but because we want people to become more and more comfortable opening the bible up to the place and knowing how to look through the bible and find it themselves and that's what we want you to do so we're constantly asking you to do that because we want you to be in the scripture because in it is life and it is direction for us and it continues to do the very thing that andrew did on the hiking trip it reminds us of where we are the book of revelation is written by inspiration from John, and John is on the island. He is, he is all by himself. He's been exiled there, and he is writing to a church. He's probably quite old by this time. He is writing to a church that is about to face great persecution. You know the kind of persecution that it's described in Hebrews, where people are uh, buried alive and sawed in two, cooked in oils, 
thrown to wild beasts, had their bodies ripped apart. This is the part of the sermon that really appeals to the junior high boys in the congregation. This is why I dwell there. But it's real persecution. It's real suffering that they're going to face. That's what the book of Revelation is written to. It's to inspire and gird up the strength and the faithfulness of a church in Asia Minor that is about to face great persecution and suffering. And so what does John say to this church to inspire them? Well, he brings them back to remind them of the God who was and is and is to come. Verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits of those who are before the throne and from the Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. First of all, John inspires and he, and he girds up their strength by reminding them of the identity of Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is the witness to God? The faithful witness, John calls him in verse 5. The faithful witness. We're living in a time not so much where people don't believe there is a God. At least this is my experience in a really secular place like Gainesville. It's not that they don't believe there's a God. They just don't believe that God is knowable. He's the unknown. He's ethereal. He's, He's distant. He's unknowable. And yet Jesus says, no, God is very knowable. You want to know what God is like? Look at me, Jesus says. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Therefore, Jesus, to a a generation of people who think that God is unknowable, Jesus says, no, he is quite knowable. Just look at me. I bear the nature and character of God. The problem is that, that... that people can't dispute Jesus. They, they love Jesus. Christianity, they're not certain about. But Jesus, they like for the most part. And Jesus says, I bear witness to God. This is what God is like. Not the worst example of Christian misbehavior that you can imagine, which is oftentimes what we equate. This is God's like. God is like this fallen pastor or this, this mean and terrible congregation or this this person who claimed to be a Christian and did something really horrible. Jesus says, I am the faithful witness. I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. John says, you want to be strengthened? Look to Jesus, the faithful witness. Secondly, he says, he's the firstborn of the dead. Paul will say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, that Jesus is King, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How can Jesus make claims about being king and Lord? Because he's the one who came back from the dead, who conquered death, who rose on the third day. And so we can walk through this life assured that God can give us life after this life is over Because Christ has gone to death and has come back to life. John says, be strengthened by the faithful witness who's the first to be born from the dead. 
and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the one who rules those who rule. Now, like I said, we don't have kings so much anymore. They're in power. But he's the one who rules over those who are in authority. Presidents, prime ministers, whatever, whatever Putin is. I don't remember what his title is. I guess it is president there too, right? Whoever these people are, they seem so confident and sure to themselves. They have, they have thousands of people who have their, their words are crafted well, at least some of their words are crafted, for the most part, to make you think that they have everything under control. But, but beneath the facade, there is the same type of insecurity that Pilate had. What is truth? The mantle of responsibility of having the fate of thousands upon thousands and upon millions upon millions of people under your care is a weighty thing to carry John says, be strengthened by the knowledge that Jesus is the ruler of those who are kings and princes, mighty people of power in the world. But then secondly, John says, be strengthened by who we are in Christ, to him who loves us to be loved by God. To be loved by God, to be, to be that place of beloved one, to be really cared for. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I've been completely alone. And that big family from Thanksgiving was so far away from me that they could be of no help to me. And yet in those places of loneliness and fear and even depression, God is the one who strikes sticks closer than a brother, and continued to remind me of his love for me and his care for me, that I'm not abandoned, that I'm not on my own, that I'm not left to try to make some sort of uh, meaning out of this meaningless life because I am simply alone in the world. That's where we would be led to believe, but yet to know the love of God in those moments of aloneness is to transform our minds. John says, be reminded that you're loved by God. And, and how do we know we're loved by God? Because, what, what is he going to say? Because he has given himself for us. By his blood, he has freed us from our sins. You want to know what the love of God looks like? It's, it's Christ dying on the cross. It's Christ giving up his life for the world, for men and women for you and me. It's saying, I will bear the penalty of your sin so that you will not be condemned to live in existence apart from the God who made you. John encourages that church that's facing suffering and persecution by reminding them of the God who loves them and who has set them free by his blood and who has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Thirdly, he says our identity is to be priests. Now, for those of you who are the, except for Father James and Father Michael and myself, you've never, you've never been called to be a priest. And so you, you actually think that, that priests are people that have their spiritual lives together. Boy, have we got you guys fooled. 
That's not at all what a priest is. I mean, if we had to be good enough to be a priest, well, we, we, there would be none. Um, a priest is one who brings God to the people, who brings people to God, who teaches the word of God, and who facilitates worship. That's, if I had to write a definition, that's what a, that's what a priest is. That's our purpose as clergy, to bring God to the people, the people to God, to teach the word of God, and to facilitate worship. But guess what? John reminds us, as Peter does as well, that we are all called to be a kingdom of priests. Shocker, here you go. You're all called to be priests in the world. Chew on that for a few minutes. You're all called to go forth from this place, bringing people to God, bringing God to people, teaching the word of God and facilitating worship that God might be glorified. That's our purpose. That we might be a kingdom of priests in this world. You see, yes, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, but Jesus' kingdom has broken into this world. And we who are his people, his servants, as John says, calls them, we're called to be those who carry his truth into the world. Whether it be your office or your school, your place of work, over the internet, wherever it is, Melbourne, to whatever group of people God has called you and uniquely gifted you to speak the truth of Christ into that is where you're called to be a priest in his kingdom. John says, this is your identity. Be strengthened, be girded. And then lastly, and I'll conclude here, Jesus brings it home in the last verse. Now verse seven, I'll just say, verse seven is, uh, is really about Advent, and that's what we're gonna be talking about the next four Sundays. Christ's return, for he will come in the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Christ will come again. We'll say it a few minutes again in our liturgy because we want to be reminded. But here's the last verse. I am the alpha and the omega. The alpha being the first letter in the Greek alphabet, the omega being the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Jesus says, I am Alpha and I am Omega. I was around before creation was made and I will be there at the end of historical time awaiting you. See, it fits right in with the, who was and is and is to come. It's the, the past, the present, and the future all there. And Christ says, I'm the, the alpha and the omega. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the reason it all began. I have a purpose in it that you're finding out. And I will be at the end to wrap it all up and to bring you into eternity. And that, friends, is the world in which we live. That is where we are in this story. You see, if we forget it, we can make it all self-serving. I mean, we, if we forget that, we can think that we come to church because we need to feel good about ourselves or we need to get some inspiration to get us through next week. 
or we're sad because we're alone and we make it all about ourselves and we lose sight of this greater story that Christ is both Alpha and Omega, that we have an Alpha point and an Omega point and that God is bringing us through. Now, we do come to church to get those things, but in the context of being people who are being reminded of that we're loved by God, that we've been set free from sin by his death and that we're called to be priests in the world for him. Without that, we just drift. The ancient world, trapped up in paganism, doing the best they could to try to understand God, just traveled around and around and around, just, just like, you know, circles around. They, they, didn't, they didn't understand that the sun was the center of the universe, but they still kind of understood themselves to be just traveling around and around and around. It all comes back, and, and it can feel that way, can it? Oh, another Christmas, more Christmas music, more Amazon shopping, more dang boxes at my front door, you know, on and on and on, around and around and around, to a suffering, persecuted church in the first century, John says, do not buy in to the lie that it just goes round and round. Jesus is Alpha and Jesus is Omega. Our temporal lives live for a greater purpose. You see, I can can so fixate on Thanksgiving week and how great it was having all of my living relatives together. And I can spend all my time and energy trying to get back there to either keep it from ever ending or to try to make keep recreating it over and over again but that's not my purpose my purpose is to live as one who has an alpha point in Christ and who has an omega point in Christ and who sees my life as living in God's plan and purpose towards his more glorious end. And when I do that, I'm ready to face whatever tomorrow brings, whether pain or suffering or loss, because I know where I am in the story. And I know the omega, Christ Jesus my Lord. Oh, friends, may we be so grounded in this greater narrative that we, yes, we enjoy all the temporal joys of life, but that we don't major on the minors. We keep our eyes fixed to the end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.